1: you have to include all kinds of pictures. And I remember saying to Michael, my husband, you don't look friendly enough in that photo. (laughs) We're not going to be chosen. You look too, you look too angry. And he, he thought I was just going crazy because you put all this pressure on yourselves to be chosen and... I also remember him putting, that is one of the questions is, what's your favorite holiday? And Michael said Passover. And I said, that's the wrong answer for a surrogate. The answer is Christmas or Thanksgiving. Why? You can't say Passover. And he said, I don't want an anti-Semite carrying our baby. It was like the weirdest conversations we were having.
2: That's Andrea Surtash. She's talking about how she was freaking out with her husband, Michael, about the profile they were making to attract a surrogate. And let me go on the record and say, I wouldn't want an anti-Semite carrying my baby either.
3: As you can probably guess, this episode is a surrogacy story.
2: But first, let's start at the beginning.
1: My name is Andrea Surtash. I'm an author and relationship expert. And I launched a site called Pregnant-ish, which is the first media site to help singles couples LGBTQ navigate the wacky world of getting pregnant with help. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm originally from Toronto, Canada, and I live with my husband, Michael. We've been together for 12 years. The first time I ever thought about my fertility was around the time I actually got my period at 13 or 14 years old. I had a lot of pain and very heavy bleeding, and I went to the doctor who told me I had something called endometriosis. And I remember her telling me that that may impact my fertility later, but it went in one ear and out the other because that was the last thing on my mind at that time. Uh, When my husband and I started trying shortly after we got married, I remember saying to him, we may have some issues, it may take us a year or two to get pregnant because I had remembered that the doctor told me that I never imagined it would take almost a decade. We've gone through 18 fertility treatments, uh, countless IUIs, insemination, and many IVFs, and um, not all of them have been full-blown IVFs. I've done a number of egg retrievals to try to make healthy embryos. Um, I had open stomach surgery in 2012 to remove a freakishly large fibroid tumor. I've experienced uh, two miscarriages in 2013 and 2014, and we sent the tissue away for testing, and I was told it was healthy. So that was the first time I thought about the fact that maybe my body was rejecting uh, healthy babies.
2: There is a lot going on in what Andrea just said. I think if you're not personally familiar with infertility, you hear terms like IUI and IVF, and it's hard to picture how many months of effort physical and emotional, go into each of those treatments. So when she describes 18 treatments, I'm thinking, whoa, she and her husband have been through a lot.
3: I know what you mean. I've actually met Andrea in person and she's one of the most driven and tenacious people I've ever spoken with about this issue. And she has a really powerful reason for wanting to have a biological child. So my
1: father was born in hiding during the Holocaust and my grandmother delivered my dad underground. The small family that my family has on my dad's side is very close because very few of them survived. My dad lost grandparents who were killed and a lot of family members.
2: So I feel like I really understand where Andrea is coming from here. Like a lot of Jewish families, mine was really decimated during the Holocaust, and only the portion who left Europe before the war survived. And that loss for a lot of Jewish families really put a new emphasis on the Torah's command to be fruitful and multiply. And as an example, you can see that desire really explicitly in Israel, where fertility treatments for their citizens are heavily subsidized. They're the only country in the world to pay for unlimited IVF cycles for women up to age 45 or until they have two take-home babies. Now, I don't want to make it seem as if I or Andrea or any other Jewish family only want biological children because of some grand cosmic mission. But for me, at least, there is an added pressure to make up for that terrible loss.
3: Can you tell me, um, when was the first time that you and your doctor and your husband started thinking or talking about the fact that you might need a surrogate? In
1: 2015. my doctor put what he called a perfect looking, beautiful embryo in my body. And we decided to do a frozen embryo transfer because I had done a number of fresh transfers that hadn't worked. And he felt that my body needed a rest between treatment and uh, the transfer of the embryo. So after he told me, you know, that this probably is the one because it's looking really good, um, after that one failed, he said, OK, we, we should no longer put anything in your body before genetically testing them uh, because I suspect your body is rejecting healthy embryos. When you go through 18 treatments with embryos that look really good or levels that look good, uh, doctors started to say to me, you know, it, chances are you shouldn't use your body because something would have worked by now.
3: And how did that make you feel?
1: It was actually a relief. Uh, there's grief attached to letting go of carrying a pregnancy for many people who end up needing surrogates, uh, but there was actually also a relief aspect to it because my body's been so beat up um, and scarred physically, literally, but also emotionally I've been beat, beaten down by all these years in treatments, and there was something really, um, really nice about just giving my body a break and hopefully having another healthy body in the mix to carry a healthy embryo.
2: We're going to come back to Andrea's story. But first, let's zoom out and take a high-level look at what surrogacy is like in North America. And to start off, I think that culturally, right now, surrogacy has a really bad reputation. It's the sort of thing that gets used as a plot point in lifetime original movies or, more prominently, in The Handmaid's Tale, which is kind of its own infertility horror genre in which everyone in America is infertile and using the few remaining fertile women as slaves and breeding stock.
3: There's also this imaginary idea out there that surrogate pregnancies are a way for hyper-driven career women to keep on pushing on that partner track or tackle that big project at work while paying another woman to just take their pregnancy for them. And it's frankly BS. It ignores the many real reasons why Andrea and other intended parents can't carry their own pregnancies as much as they want to and would need a surrogate.
2: Right. We talked to Candace Wohl earlier this season who had to have a hysterectomy because of uterine cancer. She's a great example of someone who had viable embryos but needed a gestational surrogate to carry them. And gay couples are also using gestational surrogacy to help them have genetically related kids.
3: I think maybe one reason surrogacy has such a bad reputation is that so few people have firsthand experience with it. In the U.S., it's really rare. There are only about 2,000 births a year from surrogacy.
2: Yeah, and that's out of 4 million total births a year. So it's a drop in the bucket nationally.
3: But it also stands out from the other births because of the money involved. There are two basic financial models for this arrangement. Commercial surrogacy is when a woman gets paid money on top of the reimbursements for her medical expenses and life expenses. And then there's uncompensated or altruistic surrogacy, which is when a woman is strictly reimbursed for her medical care and pregnancy-related expenses only.
2: Only 14 countries, including the U.S., have laws that allow both kinds of surrogacy.
3: Andrea and Michael knew that the only way they could have genetically related children was to go with gestational surrogacy. But just because it's legal in the U.S. doesn't mean it's easy.
1: Surrogacy can cost uh, between easily in this country between 40 and 200 thousand dollars, and you know 40 or 50 is on the very low end. So I start we started to look at Canada, where we're from originally. Um, because it's in Canada, it's actually illegal for surrogates to charge to carry. It's altruistic surrogacy, and we felt uh, that would be more within our, you know, ability um, financially. But also, we really like the Canadian healthcare system, and our families are there, and we felt that that would be a good option. So, we found an agency in the west coast of Canada and um, retained them to find our match. I can't mention their name because I almost sued them.
2: Now, when we were going through our IVF cycles, we were signing a lot of forms, you know, liability stuff, like saying we're not going to sue the clinic if something goes wrong, but also papers saying what we wanted to do with the leftover embryos and what would happen to our embryos if we got divorced or one of us died.
3: That led to some pretty interesting conversations. Like, remember, I said that if you died, I would want to give birth to our embryos because I would always want to have a piece of you to remember you with. And
2: I said something just a little bit different than that, which is that if you died before we got to use the embryos, I would not try to hire a surrogate to give birth to them because kind of hard out there in the dating scene for single dads, and I just, yeah, not really feeling that.
3: I was and still am so offended. But in the end, I made you promise that if I died, you would give the embryos to my parents so that they could try to find a surrogate and raise their own grandkids if they wanted to.
2: That's not very considerate of my second wife's feelings, you know, for after you're gone, but whatever.
3: <laughs> anyway, we figured out all that stuff on our own. But if you're doing a surrogacy, it's so much more complicated. You've got to hire an agency. you got to hire lawyers, someone to represent you and someone to represent the surrogate.
2: So that's some context for why Andrea and Michael hired an agency in the first place. Here's how they describe the process of filling out their intended parent profile.
1: Now, when you submit an application, it's a very detailed application. So you essentially have to prove as intended parents, we're called IPs, intended parents, that you are going to be good parents, that you deserve this chance. It feels like a joke <laughs> when you've you know spent your life savings and so much time and so many tears trying to make a baby to even have to prove that to anybody. But I understand it because the surrogate is volunteering in a sense. So we submitted that in the spring of 2017 and we held our breath and we got a call in June from the agency that they found a match. Someone who was excited to meet us on Skype, and we interviewed her, and um, we felt like, yeah, let's let's do this. Uh, she dropped out soon after um, we matched. She felt, and I don't blame her, she felt overwhelmed because she had just carried a uh, pregnancy for a gay couple in Canada, and Uh, was still recovering from that pregnancy. So uh, she kind of rushed into it and took a step back. But we were nevertheless uh, devastated when she said she couldn't do it.
3: Because Canada doesn't allow women to profit off surrogacy, anyone who signs up for it has to be mostly doing it because she wants to help another family.
2: Yeah, pregnancy and birth can be dangerous, and reimbursements surrogates might get for medical appointments or living expenses just can't really capture that risk that they're taking on. Even if you did want to help a family like Andrea's, you'd have to do it accepting that you were putting your own body at risk and giving up a year of your life for pregnancy and postpartum recovery.
3: It's a really small group of women who'd be willing to do that. But a couple of months after their initial disappointment, Andrea and Michael thought they had found that woman they got a call from their agency
1: and they said good news we found a match and she's very committed and she really likes your profile we were overseas at the time and we interviewed this potential surrogate and before we spoke to her on on Skype um uh, my husband and I said to the agency we we've been really beat up we we can't have the situation again where someone's going to leave us because you know when you go through infertility anyone who's gone through it knows nothing is Uh, You know, predictable, and but I can't have human error at this point. If it's hormone error, (laughs) or if it's a medical issue that's outside of someone's control, that's a different story. But if it's a human being who's going to back out or change her mind, we we cannot go through that again. And they said this person's in her, you know, at this point in her life where she's very committed, isn't going anywhere. And when we met her, that was her opening to us. I'm not going anywhere. I'm I'm really
3: committed. Andrea tried really hard to get this woman to like her. It almost sounded like romantic wooing. She sent her flowers. She sent a a birthday gift for her young daughter. They emailed a lot. But four months later on Andrea's birthday, something just seemed strange.
1: This past December 2017, I, I emailed her and I said, I woke up on my birthday so grateful that you may finally give me a birthday. And thank you and her response was off to me. I just felt like she's about to break up with me and that's actually what happened.
2: The second surrogate dropped out of the process and Andrea and Michael learned something disturbing about her living situation. They were about to entrust one of their final remaining embryos to a woman who was so vulnerable that she and her child were on the verge of homelessness.
3: Andrea and Michael were shocked. They felt betrayed by the surrogacy agency. It seemed like the agency was taking advantage of both this woman's financial desperation and Andrea and Michael's emotional desperation.
1: Uh, the agency said something like, just be patient. She might need six months or a year. And I said, are you crazy? Like, And this was the first, I think, week of January of 2018, and it was a really low point for me and Michael.
2: After the break, we find out what happened next for Andrea and Michael's surrogacy search.
3: We were so happy that IVF amount got some attention. One of the most exciting things that happened was that it landed on Atlantic's top 50 podcasts of 2017.
2: They called our marriage, quote, passive-aggressive.
3: Very good, accurate review.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ringing endorsement.
3: (laughs) And after all those reviews and messages, we realized that there was one thing we forgot to ask of you guys, which is to review us, to rate us.
2: Yeah, we forgot to do the most basic thing, which is ask you to go to the iTunes store and give us five stars and a nice little recommendation.
3: If IVFML helped you feel heard it helped you find your community, or if it helped you come up with a way to explain your situation to family and friends, please let us know.
2: You can reach us at IVFML at HuffPost.com.
3: A lot of you guys have already reached out.
2: Again, that's IVFML at HuffPost.com.
3: Thanks. Remember at the beginning of this episode when Andrea and Michael were filling out their application to appeal to surrogates?
2: Yes, and Andrea was afraid that talking about Passover would turn off people who might consider helping them.
3: Right. Andrea said that many Canadian surrogates are from small towns, and she had no way of knowing if they had ever met or been close to Jewish people. And she just didn't want to put anything on the application that might alienate or scare them. Well, in the end, Michael ended up winning their argument. And here's why.
1: We're not religious, uh, but the reason Michael chose Passover is because it was a holiday where the family gathered around a table and strangers came over, friends came over. It was just a great holiday for people to be together. And he said, that's a wonderful holiday to mention to a surrogate. And I said, you're, you're right. And he added, and if she's racist, <laughs> if this is an issue, <laughs> we don't want her carrying her child. And I said, you're right. So he kept it in.
3: I don't know why, but that that is making me tear up right now. You know, um, I think
1: what, and I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think anyone who's been through this process as you have understands the desperation and the depth of emotion and the, the the wanting is so, so big and you're kind of going to do it at any cost and there's something that's both beautiful and pathetic about it.
2: So I, I was struck when I heard this part because what about that made you cry?
3: Well, because I've been to Passover dinners with your family and, and it's, she's right. It's such an esoteric and rare holiday that less than 1% of the world's population celebrates, but it's so beautiful. It's everyone that you love gathered together, eating a meal and commemorating this epic miracle.
2: And I think maybe you were looking ahead a little bit because the rest of Andrea's story involves family and something a little bit miraculous.
1: Well, in January of 2018, after the surrogate in Canada dropped out, it was a very hard time for me and Michael because our my mother-in-law had started chemotherapy for uh, lymphoma that same month. And we just felt like we couldn't see straight. We were just having a hard time. And my cousin's husband emailed to see how we were doing, and I I was just honest. I said, crappy, how are you? And I told him what was happening.
2: He relayed the situation to Andrea's cousin, who then sent Andrea this fateful text message. Have you ever thought of a family member to help?
1: And when I read it, I was shaking so much that I couldn't actually call her because I would have sounded like a crazy person. Meet
5: Alana. My name is Alana Ox. I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and I am 31 years old. I am married with two children. Andrea is my first cousin. Our fathers are brothers.
2: Alana remembers always looking up to her big cousin Andrea, but they didn't grow up together. So it took a long time for Alana to figure out that her cousin was having problems conceiving and carrying a pregnancy to term.
5: We never really spoke directly to Andrea about any of the struggles she would have. I would find out from her mom, who's my aunt, or her older sister, because we'd always joke around, like, when's Andrea going to have kids? When, once I had my first, she was like, oh, it's my turn now, you know? And then when I, I I knew things were going on after time went by and she wasn't having children, I I just knew that she was struggling And uh, from family members. We don't get together as often as we'd like, but we talk. So she happened to be in my area. So I left work uh, early one day just to meet her for lunch, and she was telling me that she was excited to have found a surrogate and that you know, they were hoping to be pregnant by last January. So once January came around, um, you know, I had her in my mind and it was kind of on my radar. And I knew what it had taken for them to get to this point, even to to even consider a surrogate because they'd been through so much. So I, I kind of been involved over the last 10 years, just hearing things here and there. Um, and then my husband randomly texted her in January, I think the same day her surrogate dropped out, not realizing. He just texted her, like, hi, how are things going? Like, out of the blue, because they also get along. They know each other. Um, And she was like, actually, not so good. Our surrogate just dropped out after months of working with her, um, and it's very unexpected. So when I came home that day, he told me about his, like, kind of texting conversation with her, and I kind of just looked at him, and I was like, you know, I'm going to, you know, reach out to her.
2: About five years ago, Alana had once offered to donate some eggs to Andrea so it wasn't that far of a stretch to think she might donate even more. But Andrea could have never guessed she'd be willing to carry a pregnancy for her. Most importantly, she would have never asked.
1: It's just such a huge ask to ask a friend or family member to carry a pregnancy. It's at least a year of their lives. I know from going through so many fertility treatments that the shots, especially progesterone and oil in the butt, aren't so fun. I just didn't want to subject Someone I loved to that. I, I didn't want her to feel obligated to help. Um, it's just not something I
2: would ever ask someone to do. Alana was absolutely certain about it, even over her husband's worries.
5: I knew I I wanted to do it, and he saw that in me. So I think he just kind of had to accept it, if I'm being completely honest. Um, I, I really started off by telling him I just want to have a conversation with her about it to learn more about it. I'm also an Orthodox Jew. So, like, I called my rabbis. I didn't anticipate any issues. It's very much encouraged to help. But I was curious also to know the religious perspective on it. Once I started talking to her the next day, I just realized I had to do it. I can't explain it. Like, I've never, she's always been my big cousin. She's very confident and successful. And I saw a different side of her that was very vulnerable and beaten down. And I'm tearing up as I'm talking to you. It just, it made me really sad. And once I realized how much easier it would be for me to do this with her and how much we could get this farther along much quicker and easier, um, I just, you know, by the time I came home, my husband saw that my mind was made up. So he kind of had to accept it, and we just kind of went along with it
3: together. In so many ways, Alana was the perfect candidate for a surrogacy in general, not just for Andrea. She already had two of her own children, and those pregnancies were healthy and uncomplicated. She was financially stable, with a loving and supportive partner, and a happy family life. She was young and she was healthy. And most of all, she wanted to do it. Badly.
2: So badly that she didn't even want Andrea to reimburse anything for her except the doctor's visits, even though gestational surrogates are generally entitled to a lot more, even those who are technically doing uncompensated surrogacies.
3: Andrea told us that you were not accepting any compensation except for the medical bills, but, and, but hearing from you, it does sound like this pregnancy has upended your life a little bit. So, so what's behind the decision to not accept any help for housekeeping or maternity clothes or groceries? So, I'm tearing up again as you're talking to me, but I'm gonna blame it on hormones.
5: Um, so, I already—that's also why I was inclined to help her when she told me how much she had to provide for the other surrogate. I found it absurd, although I'm not. I'm not uh, saying that it's not appropriate. I'm just saying she was telling me that for the other surrogate, all these things are, are something she pays for. And I thought it's her right to have a child. I already have other kids in the house. I mean, I'm already, I already have a cleaning lady. I already have um, a system in, how, in terms of how we get groceries. My housekeeper actually helps us with groceries. My husband does groceries. I already have my kids in daycare because it's my own daycare. I don't need it. Like If I'm already paying for it for my family, why would I charge her for something like that? I already have that set up. So I don't, I don't feel like that's right. For you personally. My situation did not lend itself to need those things to be paid for.
3: They were already in place. Alana wasn't worried about the cost of becoming a surrogate. But the actual process of getting pregnant through fertility treatments was a shock. Well,
5: I've never gone through fertility treatments before, and I have a fear of needles. So the nine weeks plus of hormone treatments, which are needles in my behind, plus oral um, progesterone and estrogen pills... And other fact, things that I had to do just to prep my body for the transfer, and then once the transfer of the embryo was in me to keep my body from not rejecting the embryo, that was very hard for me. Not because I was like cuckoo hormonal, it was more physically, like I started getting migraines, They thought I was having blood clotting in my legs, which can happen when you're on certain um, hormone pills, um, which turned out to be nothing, thank God, but just the... I I did probably develop anxiety about getting the needles. Honestly, the first time we did the needles, my husband, thankfully, he was a good sport about doing it for me. Um, The first time we tried, the needle dislodged and got stuck inside of me, and there was blood squirting everywhere.
2: But the needles, hormones, and implantation all worked. When we talked to Alana in mid-October, she had just made it to the beginning of her third trimester. She told us that she felt large and in charge, and that physically, the pregnancy has been just as smooth as her previous two.
5: I feel great. The only difference is it's not mine. So maybe I'm a little bit more nervous and in different kind of way. How so? I don't know. Like if I trip and fall, God forbid, it's different when it's your own and you're carrying someone else's baby. Not that I want to trip and fall. If it's my own either. It's just different. It's just different. I feel the same. The pregnancy physically is the same. And emotionally, listen, you asked me how many weeks, I am. I didn't exactly know. I think emotionally I'm handling it differently. I'm trying to be a little bit more logical about it so that I don't get too attached because, you know, it's not mine. Although I feel the baby moving a lot more, you know, lying in bed, it's like, oh, it's really in there. Even though I'm large and it's clear I'm pregnant, it it could play with your head. It's different than my other pregnancies. It's just different.
2: So if Alana's pregnant, that means Andrea's pregnant-ish. Here's what she said it was like to experience her baby's growth vicariously through her cousin.
1: Well, surrogacy, and this is an intentional pun, is an out-of-body experience. Um, Very (laughs) surreal. People will say all the time, oh, you're really lucky you're traveling and drinking wine. and, And they're right. That's awesome. But it's also hard. I can't lie. I mean, there are times that... I have to remind myself that the baby is coming. are we she's not hearing my voice? My cousin offered for me to record it to play, which is very sweet. um, but I'm removed somewhat, and um i'm you know i I don't really know where I fit in, even though my cousin's done everything to fit me in and invited me to any ultrasound and uh she's been amazing, so it's nothing she's doing. It's just the reality of being an intended parent in a way I feel like the husband or the lover, the partner of the person who's pregnant. Mm. Um, because I feel the belly, I see the pictures, I'm excited, I'm but I'm not pregnant, I'm pregnant-ish. and I, you know, I will never know what it's like to have a baby kicking in me. I lost pregnancies before that happened. So there's mourning that comes along with it as well, although more gratitude than anything.
3: And here's what Alana had to say about the experience.
5: It was a little bit awkward for me at first because I went for the
1: first appointment just to even
5: see if like my uterus was up to standards for her fertility doctor and they were like ooing and eyeing over my follicles in my uterus. Look at the le- look at how long they are and how lush they are. I literally and I was like so embarrassed. I was like thank you. Like I didn't know what to say. Like like do you compliment someone on like the color of their hair if it's naturally like a beautiful color? Like you don't I felt like I didn't do anything to deserve that. So at the beginning, it was awkward because every time we leave a doctor's appointment, I could see on her face, she was like, no doctors ever just said, great, looking good. See you next time.
3: Oh, that's so bittersweet. Alana is so thoughtful to think about how this experience is affecting her cousin, even though she's the one who's pregnant. And I guess that's one of the beautiful things about having someone you know and love be your surrogate.
2: But it's not just that love and familiarity that makes this surrogacy remarkable. We mentioned there was something a little bit miraculous about Andrea and Alana's story, and that's because their story doesn't just begin in 2018. It goes way back into the history of their family, when their grandparents escaped the Holocaust only to find themselves trapped behind the Iron Curtain and forced into hiding.
1: My grandfather was in a camp and came back, thankfully, to reunite with uh, their mother, but They, you know, they lost a lot of family and in 1956 when they escaped the communist uprising in Hungary, my father carried Alana's father on his back and they walked to another country as refugees.
2: To give a little context here, remember that Andrea's father was born in hiding during the Holocaust and his brother, Alana's father, was born 10 years later. So when she says her father carried Alana's father on his back, she's being literal her 13-year-old father carried his 3-year-old brother on his back out of Budapest to safety.
1: And so when Elena offered to carry, she said something I'll never forget. She said, we have such a small family. Let me try to help rebuild it. I said to her, "I, I, it's amazing to me that my dad carried your dad on his back and you have my back. So it just really felt like a... True circle of life story, family story.
3: I'm so sorry that I don't. I know that I already know all the parts of your story, but like I don't know that something weird or wrong today. I just can't stop crying. You know, Anna, I was at a fertility conference
1: called ASRM last week in Denver. Four people cried when I told them the story, and I'm just sitting there. I think because I know it, but if you've been through infertility, it has a, a different meaning maybe or you know you think about your family it's not unusual um my dad and his brother were very emotional and my grandmother who i've thought of this entire pregnancy because she had so much trauma with babies she delivered my dad in hiding she lost two baby boys she she just had trauma and i keep i kept thinking of my grandmother as did elena And Alana's actually named after my grandmother. Uh, Her middle name is Judith, which is her name. So it feels kind of uh, cosmic in in a way. I would want to slap people when they'd say to me, this will make sense one day. And by the way, with grief, never try to wrap it in a pretty bow. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, and it just sucks. And people need to just sit with that and not try to make it better. But in this case, I can honestly say I couldn't have written this chapter better.
2: We want to say thank you so much to Andrea Sirtash and Alana Ox for sharing their story with IVFML listeners. And please check out Andrea and Alana's story in People Magazine, which first wrote about it back in September.
3: If you want to learn more about what Andrea does, check out Pregnantish.com. That's P-R-E-G-N-A-N-T-I-S-H.com. IVFML Becoming Family is produced and edited by Anna Almendralla, Simon Gans, Nick Offenberg, and Sarah Patterson, with additional production this episode by Derek Clements.